I think it's fair to say that this COVID-19 crisis has put a lot of perspective in our lives. This global pandemic that's caused thousands of deaths, thousands of job losses, and left complete destruction in its wake has caused a lot of us to ask some really serious and deep questions. We've asked ourselves questions like, what is most important to me? What really matters in this world? Where can real hope be found? And seeing the death toll rise and rise over the last few months, it's probably forced us to think about the question, is this all there is? Is this life, in all its brokenness, all there is? Or is there maybe life after death? And if there is life after death, what does it look like? We talk about heaven, but what is heaven really like? I think deep down we all want a knowledge uh, some kind of information about the other side? Do we not long to know something more than the existence that's around us? Uh, every time a book is published, it's about people who've gone to heaven and come back and told their story. It sells thousands of copies. One came out a number of years ago about a six-year-old boy who was in a coma. Apparently, he claimed to have gone to heaven while he was in his coma, and he co-authored a book with his father, and it sold over a million copies. Until a couple of years after, they came out and admitted that they'd actually made up the whole story. Well, this morning, we're looking at John's Gospel. John is an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And Jesus is going to make some big claims in John's Gospel about his identity and therefore his ability to tell us what heaven is all about. If you flick over to chapter 1 verse 50 of John's Gospel, John tells us that he and the other disciples were told by Jesus that they would see heaven open, that they would see what it's like inside heaven. They would see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is just a title for Jesus. You see, in John chapter 1 verse 50, John is claiming that Jesus is heaven come to earth. Heaven has come to earth in the person of Jesus. Chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is God. John makes the claim that he is the light of heaven brought into the darkness of our broken world. That Jesus is the word of God made flesh revealing to us what God is like and what God's kingdom, what heaven is like. And if you look down at verse 14 of chapter 1 of John's Gospel, John makes it clear that he and the other disciples saw the glory of Jesus. How did they see it? How did they see the glory of Jesus? Well, in verse 11 of today's passage, we see that Jesus performed many miraculous signs that showed who he was, that he was who he said he was. These miraculous signs that Jesus performs prove who he was and they help us to understand more of what heaven was like because Jesus came from heaven to earth 
He was God in flesh. So let's dive into our passage and let's think more about what happens in this little section and think more about how Jesus reveals both himself and the kingdom. So our first heading is the issue revealed. Verses one to three of this section uh, set the scene for Jesus's miracle. Just let me read those verses again. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Just imagine this scene with me. There's a big wedding happening. The ceremony has been and gone, and now we're at the wedding reception. Now, if you're anything like me, you love a wedding reception. Wedding reception normally involves a great dinner. Normally a good one will have three courses of fine food, of good drinks, and of good company as you're sat with your friends or family who you can have a good time with. These are meant to be times of joy, uh, times of laughter. And most uh, modern Western uh, weddings have uh, just a one day affair. They start maybe in the morning or early afternoon and go on to late at night. But normally they're just a one day affair. We see in ancient Middle Eastern culture, weddings were so much more significant. They were a spectacular event. They were huge. They were things that would have gone on for several days at a time, several days of feasting and laughing together. You see, weddings were important because they had a deep symbolic meaning, especially for Jewish people. They were deeply symbolic because God himself in the Old Testament had promised that one day he would be like a husband to the Jewish people. He'd be like a husband who cares for them and provides for them. And ultimately, God promised that as their husband, he would bring them into a perfect kingdom. You see, a wedding for these people was just a symbol. It was a picture of what God was going to ultimately do when he rescued his people. Not only this, but weddings were also all about status and wealth. You see, in that culture, the richer you were, the more powerful you were, the greater your status, then the greater wedding you would have. The bigger the celebration, the more days it went on for the more drink you would consume, the more food you would consume. Just imagine that scene with me. Days and days of feasting and drinking, partying and dancing. But notice with me in verse three, where the issue, the problem is revealed. We find out the wine has gone. Now this might sound slightly insignificant to our modern Western ears. Okay, the wine's gone. But what about all the other drinks? What about some water or some juice? What about the Christian wine, you know, some schlur? Could they not drink something else? Well, we have to know more about what wine means in this culture and why this issue is so big. Firstly, people liked to have a big party. As I said, weddings had gone for several days and wine was a key component of that. But secondly, again, wine was hugely symbolic to the Jewish people. Wine in ancient Jewish culture was shorthand for the blessing of God. Again, throughout the Old Testament, when life was good, 
when the people of Israel obeyed God, when they followed his laws and his commandments, then they were blessed by God. They lived well and prospered in the land of Israel. And a huge sign of their prospering was they had wine. They had wine as a way to celebrate. In that passage in Isaiah 25 that we read earlier and in verse 6, where God promises this perfect place of celebration, one of the key features of that place is having aged wine, a banquet of aged wine. But on the flip side, when the people went away from God, when people lived sinful lives and they didn't obey God and they didn't follow in his ways, then they weren't blessed by God. They were cursed. And one of the key signs of the curse was that they had no wine to drink. You see, because no wine means no celebration, no joy, no festivities, no blessing from God. So having no wine was a huge no-no in this culture. I mean, this is a serious, serious, big thing. It would be awful for a party to run out of wine. Without wine, the party would peter out. The host's reputation would be in tatters. It would be social suicide for people in this culture to run out of wine before the end of the festivities. But notice in that in verse three, when Jesus's mother has identified the problem, she asks Jesus to intervene. Jesus, who is also at this wedding with his disciples, and she wants him to do something about this. Remember what we said at the start. Jesus has been talking to his disciples throughout chapter one and telling them about who he is, about what he reveals as he's with them on earth. I have no doubt that Jesus's mother heard some of these things and felt like he could intervene. But what will Jesus do? What will he do in this situation? Look down at verse four of our text with me. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Now, this is probably not the response that Jesus's mother was after. And it might sound like an odd response to us. What does Jesus mean when he says, my hour has not yet come? What could he possibly mean? Well, in John's gospel, the hour that Jesus is referring to is the hour of his crucifixion. It's the hour when Jesus will suffer on a cross in the place of sinful people. It's where he will take God's anger and wrath against the sinfulness of all humanity and bear it so sinners can come into God's perfect kingdom. You see, those who trust in Jesus and his work on the cross can rest now, knowing that one day when they die, they're going to see heaven in its fullness. They're going to be welcomed into God's kingdom. But while Jesus is here on earth, he is revealing more of what the kingdom is like. He's doing these miraculous signs that help us understand what God's glorious kingdom is like and what God himself is like. So when Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come, he's referring to the hour of his ultimate mission, his hour when he went to the cross to save a broken world. But in verse five, Jesus' mother requests that the servants at this wedding do whatever Jesus asks. She knows that Jesus can do something about this problem. You see, the issue has been revealed, but Jesus is going to use it to reveal his kingdom. 
And that's our second point, the kingdom revealed. Look down at verse 6 as I read that. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This uh, section of verses have some amazing details in it. And those details are going to help us understand more about what Jesus is revealing through this miracle. So let's look at them together. Firstly, notice that Jesus gets them to fill these jars. These jars that were used for ceremonial washing. These jars that held about 100 litres of liquid in. As I said, they were used for ceremonial washing, normally for the Jewish people to wash before they ate food. You see, these jars were a symbol of the old religion. The old religion of following the law, of following the rules made up by the religious leaders of the day. But did you see what Jesus does with these ceremonial jars? He transforms them. He transforms them into these monumentally huge vats of wine. Jesus is making it clear that his kingdom is about joy and celebration. It's about out with the old religion. It's about being no more of people going to be enslaved by the law. Instead, they're going to have a living relationship with Jesus, with God himself. The law that enslaved people is cleaned out. It's washed out and replaced with the new wine, a wine of celebration, the wine of blessing, the wine that signifies a new and real relationship with God. Remember, Jesus is God. John 1 makes that very clear. So Jesus can reveal God to us. And here he is saying, I'm here. It's a time for celebration. Secondly, in verse 7, Jesus gets the servants to fill the jars and fill them to the brim. Now, why is that significant? Because Jesus wants more wine? Because he wants as much wine as possible for the party? Probably not. Again, this is a clear picture of the plentifulness of God's kingdom. You see, God's kingdom isn't a place where the wine runs out. It's not a place where the party peters out and dies down. No. Remember again from that passage in Isaiah that was read earlier. Isaiah talks about this place that is going to be a feast. It's going to be a banquet, a place of plenty for everybody, a place where things are filled to the brim. You see, being with God in his presence in heaven, in his kingdom, is their very definition of fulfilment. There's going to be no sense of loss, no sense of emptiness when we're in God's kingdom. Rather, just a feeling of plenty, of fulfilment, of joy. Thirdly, look down at verses 8 and 9. So the servants have filled these jars with water, and now Jesus instructs them, take some of that water 
and take it to the master of the banquet, the one in charge of all the feast and proceedings. You can imagine their nervousness, can't you? They've just filled these jars with water and now they're taking a glass of this water to the master of the banquet. What's he going to say? How are we going to explain why we've just brought him a glass of water? I imagine they worried it was going to be a very awkward interaction. But when the man goes to taste the water, it has been miraculously turned into wine. And look down at the verses. This isn't just any wine. No, this is not like that red wine you find in a box in one of the middle shelves of Aldi. No, this is the gold filigree bottle of Chateauneuf de Pape from Waitrose. This is the best wine, the greatest wine that you could ever, ever taste. The master of the banquet says to the bridegroom that the wine that Jesus has just made is the best there's been. You see, normally they brought the best wine out first and when their guests had had too much to drink, they bring out the cheap wine. But this wine is the best he's ever tasted. And this is significant. Remember, we have to ask the question about these details. What are they showing us about God's kingdom, about God's eternal kingdom? Well, it's telling us it's the best place, isn't it? The kingdom of God is the best place to be. It's the best of the best. It's the greatest place to dwell. And why is that? Well, because God himself is there. Heaven, God's eternal kingdom, is where God dwells. And that is the best place to be, like the choicest wine. It's the thing we're going to enjoy most. Again, Isaiah 25 tells us that God's kingdom is a place where there is no more death, where there is no more tears. You see, we started by asking, how has this crisis made us reflect on life and death and ask those deep questions? Well, let me ask you, do you not long to live in a place without death. A place where there is no crying, where there is no sadness, where nothing causes us grief. A place where the only thing we know is pure, unadulterated joy and pleasure in the presence of God. Because I know I do. I know I long to be there with every new headline of a murder with every new headline of a cancer diagnosis, of political corruption, of systemic racism, of global pandemics, I long more and more to be in a place of joy, not in a place of death. And the offer of Jesus is that through him, you too can look forward to being in that place of perfection. These few verses reveal the perfect, plentiful, kingdom of God. And the final two verses also reveal to us something of the glory of Jesus. So our final heading is the glory of Jesus revealed. Just look at verse 11 with me in the text. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. See, the miracle that Jesus performed was just the first of many signs by which he revealed his glory, meaning he revealed who he was, revealing that he is God. 
that he shows his glory as he performs these different signs throughout John's gospel. Think about the miracle of the water turned into wine. It's a very famous miracle and it seems uh, very well known and it seems very simple. But actually here we see a demonstration of power and authority over the created order. Without words, without actions, Jesus miraculously turns water into the choicest of wines. And the only way that is possible, the only explanation is that Jesus is God. He is who he says he is. And the disciples were clearly convinced when they saw this. Verse 11 tells us that they believed in him. That this partial revelation of the kingdom of God and of God himself was enough to convince them. Again, we started by asking if there is something called heaven after death and we could be there. What is it like? And hopefully you saw with me that it's a place of perfection, a place of abundance, a place where God himself dwelt. And now we know what it is like. Again, I ask you. Do you not long to be there? She's to enter into this kingdom. The only way to enter is through Jesus. By trusting in what he did in his hour, in the hour of fulfilment, where Jesus went to the cross, when he bore the punishment we deserved for rejecting God, to make a way for sinners to come into God's perfect and abundant kingdom. And more than this, when he was raised from the dead on the third day, Isaiah 25 tells us he swallowed up death forever. It's meaning all those who trust in his death and resurrection can have real hope in the face of a pandemic. People who trust in Jesus can have real hope in the face of a broken world. Real hope, no no matter what happens in this life. They will one day be in that kingdom of perfection. If you do not know Jesus, if you do not know this real hope, can I urge you today to respond to this message? To repent, to turn to Jesus, to say sorry for the ways that you have gone away from him and to say yes to the new life he offers. Only then can you have true, lasting, real hope of being in God's perfect kingdom. But maybe you're listening to this, church family, and you know you trust Jesus. But what's happened in the world, what's happening in your life right now, maybe a job loss or a broken relationship, maybe these things have caused you to question God's character. Then can I encourage you to meditate on what this passage tells us? Meditate on what it shows us about God. We see here a God who gives generously. He fills the water jars to the brim with the best wine. That is our God, a God of generosity, a God who lavishes us with blessing after blessing, so numerous they can't be counted. And here we see a God whose mercies are anew each morning. See, this is the good God who loves you and cares deeply for you. And we can see also in this passage the kindness of God. Jesus is in no way obligated to perform any miracle. He's not obligated to save the party, but he does it. He's willing because he loves people 
and he wants to reflect the goodness and the kindness of God. So friends, be encouraged. If you're feeling discouraged about God's character, look at this passage again and see the goodness of God shine through. Find not only hope for tomorrow in the perfect kingdom of God, but find joy for today in the unchanging goodness of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this passage in John's Gospel. Father, thank you that it reveals what you're like, that you are generous, that you are kind and loving. And Father, thank you for what it reveals about your kingdom, that it's a perfect place, that it's a place of abundance. Father, would we have a certain hope of being there one day with you as we trust in the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross. Father, help us to abide in him through the thick and thin of life. When life is good and life is hard, Father, help us to reflect on your unchanging goodness to us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.